Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, yes, uh, welcome to another edition of our Sahil Sadika Truthful News. And Alhamdulillah, both uh, Tobela and I have been uh, brainstorming what we should uh, do this week. And Alhamdulillah, this is uh, the compilation uh, that we have come up uh, with uh, this uh, evening. And inshallah, we will be starting off uh, very shortly with a topic that uh, you know everyone uh, has on the mind, uh, that is uh, Ukraine. And uh, Russia, what's uh, really happening there? The latest in the Ukrainian war, uh, Donald uh, Quarter will be talking there. And uh, yeah, it will be a quick uh, discussion between uh, Daniel Quarter and uh, George Galloway. You know that five million, yes, uh, there's five million uh, Ukrainians uh, that are living in Russia today. And if uh, Russia was uh, that bad, they wouldn't be running there. And as you know, that um, a lot of Ukrainians have uh, gone into Europe. And what has happened there in Europe is that these uh, the European hospitality showed its true colors. All the men that are there, or Ukrainian men that are in Europe, have been sent back to uh, Ukraine to go into the army. And, you know, they're saying the lamb uh, to the slaughter. So, uh, yes, I will be looking uh, forward to that. Uh, we, we'll kick off our show with that. And uh, then, inshallah, we'll be followed by uh, Britain is no longer a Christian country. And uh, yeah, so say the uh, clergy. And uh, this is uh, a topic uh, that uh, many of you will be enjoying uh, this uh, this evening. And yeah, you can see what's uh, happening with the there. The priest attitudes have also changed, and uh, they are succumbing to the popular public opinion. And the church is uh, declining, and therefore accepting popular public opinions. And uh, Pope Francis says uh, that uh, the Catholic Church should be more flexible to the sins of the flesh and the Pope has now abolished the death penalty and uh, that will be uh, uh, you know uh, that part of the conversation (coughs) will be uh, discussed uh, by Paul Williams then uh, we move on to uh, Saudi and Russia have uh, changed the game and uh, that will be uh, Sean Foe be looking at how banks are collapsing uh, that the Saudi Aramco planning to sell the shares in the open market and so forth and something that you will definitely enjoy uh, this evening with uh, Sean Foe. Then uh, we will end off our show with uh, Almir uh, Kolan, who will be talking about the wisdom behind the prohibition of riba and, uh, you know, riba changing uh, money for money, for unequal money, bank issues, loans uh, with a, you know, with a huge interest rate, which uh, subjugates uh, the borrower and who, in most cases, fails to pay in his uh, lifetime. Millions of people have, uh, you know, been uh, left, have uh, reached, uh, have been uh, become destitute, and their lives have been uh, miserable because they fell prey to uh, riba. So, giving loans uh, to people who will default and uh, making them uh, pay even more, banks uh, take insurance on the would-be defaulter. Imagine they allow that; uh, they know what they're doing, and uh, the shaitanic system has definitely added to a very toxic world. So, inshallah, sit back and enjoy this edition of Wasail Alam Asadika. Now, Donald, um, the, the war drags on, of course, and Blinken is there visiting the war graves now, but they're short of intervention, and you've got to guess that in an election year, uh, that's not going to happen. It could all go so disastrously wrong. Uh, what is the point in the United States continuing to throw good money after bad 
at a regime in Kiev that seems to be coming apart at the seams. Well, first of all, George, thanks a lot for having me back on the show. I mean, I think the real point uh, from the beginning really has not been any sort of Ukrainian victory in this conflict. It's just been to make this conflict as costly and difficult for Russia as possible before the inevitable victory of Russia. And I think even the United States understands that. I mean, it's not possible for the, the Kiev regime to actually have a, a victory against Russia in this conflict, even with all this backing from NATO in terms of weapons and foreign mercenaries that are going uh, to support the Ukrainian military in this conflict. I think the ultimate goal is just to make this as difficult for Russia as as possible, even though we're seeing how the Ukrainian counteroffensive obviously has not met expectations. They thought it was going to be more successful than the previous one, where Ukraine was able to take back some territory in its uh, Kharkov region. But we're seeing that it's basically stalled. It's it's not as nearly as successful as it was projected by Western experts or the Ukrainians themselves. In fact, during this Ukrainian counteroffensive, we're seeing Russian offensives and advances, specifically in the Kharkov region of Ukraine, where uh, Russian forces are just several kilometers away from the major city of Kupiansk, which is a communications hub between the uh, pro-Ukrainian authorities in Kharkov region with Kiev. I mean, if Russian forces take that town, which it's looking like they're going to, they would have an open shot to the capital of Kharkov region and be able to take back essentially all of the territory that they lost during the uh, first Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, counter that we saw last year. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we've seen limited successes. It looks like uh, I'm not really sure what exactly Antony Blinken hopes to achieve with this trip, except, except to maybe try and raise morale among the people that the United States is using for cannon fodder in this conflict against Russia. In a bad uh, place, if you were relying on Antony Blinken to raise your morale, uh, he has uh, all the charisma of uh, a wet lettuce, as we say. Um, the outgoing defense minister in Kiev, uh, now ambassador to London, could have been worse, uh, but could have been better. Uh, he said that they're spending $100 million a day uh, in Ukraine on the war. And almost all of that, he said, is coming from overseas, which means it's coming from uh, from uh, your people and my people and the French people and the Germans and the Slovaks and the French and the Italians and so on. A hundred million a day is a billion every 10 days in a war that is now well over 500 days old. What a waste of money, never mind the blood and the destruction. You wonder when the worm's going to turn, don't you? Well, I, obviously, I completely agree with you that it's a complete waste of money, but that's not even, I, I would say that's not even the worst part of it, just throwing money at this uh, war that's obviously unwinnable for Ukraine. But let's think about the fact that uh, billions of dollars of, of Western tax dollars are going to this country that's one of the most corrupt governments. It has one of the most corrupt governments in Europe. And aside from the fact that it's super corrupt and the fact that 
tons of these weapons that are going to Ukraine as well are going to end up in the hands of terrorists or, you know, radical groups in other places of the world. We can also look at the fact that, you know, it's, it's just such a joke that the West is supporting Ukraine on the basis of calling it a democracy when all of the political opposition in Ukraine has been banned. And also, uh, I actually did a report about this today at, at, uh, at RT, the fact that there was recently an interview uh, in The Economist with a the former head of the Ukrainian security services. And this interview, in this interview with the former head of the Ukrainian security services, he talks about how the SBU, or the Ukrainian Security Services, they formed an assassination program back in 2015 when all this was going on with Ukraine's so-called anti-terrorist operation in Donbass, when basically anyone who potentially had uh, some pro-Russian views or didn't even agree with Kiev's political course could have been considered a terrorist. They created this assassination program back in 2015 when they were where, where they were organizing and still are organizing death squads to kill people in Ukraine that, you know, are suspected of potentially supporting Russia and just don't agree with uh, Kiev's political course. One example is uh, one mayor who was, who was actually a mayor of a town in Ukraine's uh, Kharkov region. He was killed by Ukrainian death squads for being accused of collaborating with the Russians, but he was killed by a car bomb. This is a guy that never took up arms against the Kiev government. He was a civilian, he was a politician, and he had pro-Russian views. And for that, they killed him by by a car bombing. It's absolutely crazy that the West continue, continues to uh, call Ukraine a democracy. They talk about potentially integrating Ukraine into the European Union. We've got even uh, one Ukrainian official, The I think, I think it was the Deputy Prime Minister of European and Euro-Atlantic Integration, saying that they're planning on uh, joining the European Union even before the end of uh, the Ukraine, uh, before the end of Kiev's conflict with Russia, which is absolutely an, an absurd thing to suggest, especially when, like I said, we've got this Ukrainian government assassinating people who aren't even uh, combatants because they're suspected of potentially supporting Russia inside Ukraine. And of course, we know about the other instances outside of this official assassination program where, you know, for example, Daria Dugina, Russian journalist, not a combatant, she was assassinated by the Ukrainian security services. They had uh, several other assassination attempts like on uh, Prilepin, who was a Russian, pro-Russian writer. You know, they tried to they tried to kill him. So it's obvious that the Ukrainian government is carrying out these terrorist acts, assassinations uh, against civilians all the while where like i said before they've banned all their political opposition it's not possible to uh, speak against the government in any official capacity there and we've also got uh, the um the ukrainian uh, actually i forgot specific ah yeah it was the secretary of the national security and defense council of ukraine who was just recently saying that elections could potentially destabilize ukraine uh, where it is right now in the conflict. So, you know, we're looking at a country that the West is throwing all this money to, calling it a democracy, that might not even have elections. It's, it's, it's really not surprising, and, you know, we don't even know how much other money, how many other corruption scandals are going on, but that the people who are behind them are just good enough at covering it up. And how many of these weapons are being sent to... Uh, 
you know, or sold to terrorist groups around the world. We've already heard some officials talking about how some of these Western-supplied weapons are ending up in the hands of terrorist groups in Africa. It's already beginning to surface. But the real repercussions of all this money and all these weapons going to Ukraine, they're only really going to show themselves in years in the future, probably when we have another big conflict in God knows where, you know. The the concern about the ruble, obviously the ruble has uh, significantly depreciated over the last month or two, but people really are optimistic about it going back, I would say, because a lot of it is tied uh, not even to structural circumstances connected to the economy, but really the price of the international price of oil. Um, and I'm sure when Russia starts to make very significant advances in the conflict, that uh, whole situation is probably going to change as well. Well, and the price of oil rules today uh, above $90 a barrel. 16-year-old boys or 60-year-old old men can be safe from being drafted is to go to Russia or Belarus and many of them are right now packing to do just that. So uh, prepare for another large number of Ukrainians seeking shelter and asylum in Russia, Donald. Yeah, and and to be honest, we could say the same about even a lot of the Ukrainian refugees that fled to Europe and the United States as well. I mean, the truth. Actually, I even I have one Ukrainian friend who lives in America who has who is hosting Ukrainian refugees in her own home, and she says that you know they're not anti-Russian; they're just they don't want to get a knock on the door by the SBU in the middle of the night and have them you know dragged over to become cannon fodder on the front line for a war that they you know don't don't believe in they they don't really necessarily agree with the kiev government they don't really have any sort of uh, you know hard feelings yes sir, there you have the uh, picture what's uh, really going on there ukrainians uh, most of them they don't want that fight they just don't want that fighter but you know who's uh, pushing forward the agenda yes uh, time for us to go to our other segment where we look at uh, britain is no longer a Christian country, so say frontline clergy. Marcus Sahaba Online Radio, empowering the Ummah. ...and happy with what we believe. That's the litmus test of uh, what's acceptable, it seems. The article continues, a majority of priests want the church to start conducting what they call same-sex weddings and drop its opposition to premarital and gay sex in results likely described as absolutely huge by campaigners. This is an enthusiastic uh, response. So they want uh, most priests now in the church uh, not only want to um, conduct what they call same-sex weddings between obviously a man and a man or a woman and a woman, um, but also now to approve of fornication. Uh, This is now to be approved of. Uh, The survey also uncovered high levels of stress among priests, many of whom feel overstretched. They fear that the church's efforts to arrest the decline in attendance will fail. And this may ultimately lead to its extinction. So priests are worried their church is going nowhere fast. It's declining. It's losing its hemorrhaging members um, incredibly fast. And the church may be extinct uh, in the future. Now, the church at the moment currently teaches that only weddings between a man and a woman are permitted, says the the Times, in church, and that sex is only permissible within heterosexual marriages. 
Bishops recently, however, said that they will allow priests to bless gay couples and are under pressure to go further and permit what they call same-sex weddings. They are under they are considering now whether to drop the teaching that gay sex is, quote, incompatible with Christian teaching and whether to allow gay priests to have civil weddings themselves. So vicars, two men, two male priests will be able to marry each other, perhaps. I want to talk to you about something that's been... And this will be presented uh, to the church's assembly, the General Synod, in autumn, this recommendation. Now, this is a reversal. These survey findings is a reversal of the proportions the last time Anglican priests were asked about the issue in 2014, um, after the legislation of same-sex civil marriage, when 51% of priests declared that same-sex marriage to be wrong, compared with 39% who said they backed it. So the church has now changed its, well, the priests have changed their mind. Most of them now agree uh, with the idea that all these things should be approved of. It strikes me that the, the priest's attitude, the clergy's attitude, tracks quite closely with the change in social attitudes in wider society. So as the society changes, most of them are not Christians, the church's priest's attitude changes as well. It may lag behind a little bit, but it follows along. It, it copies ultimately what unbelieving people think and feel about any given issue. So that seems to be what the church is doing. Now, you may say, well, but does this really matter? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? If we look at the Bible, um, here's my copy. Uh, this, the NIV, this is the study Bible, is the most popular English translation of the Bible anywhere. Um, I just want to quote for you two verses, one from what Christians call the Old Testament, or the Jews call, of course, the Torah, the Torah or the Jewish Bible or the Tanakh. They don't call it the Old Testament because it's still very much their Bible they follow today. Anyway, in that in in that uh, book, in Leviticus chapter 18, we have a whole series of lists of unlawful sexual relations. And they include things like, you know, you don't have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, don't and defile yourself with her, don't have sexual relations with animals and defile yourself with it. And it says also, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. So this is the commandments of God given to Moses, upon whom be peace, on Mount Sinai. Don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. So that is very clear in the Jewish Bible. What about the new so-called New Testament that Christians follow? Does that say anything different? Well, um, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And this lists a whole bunch of sins which exclude you from the kingdom of God. Um, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, it says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And that goes on. So in that list of those uh, who are excluded from God's kingdom includes, and I quote here, um, the sexually immoral and uh, men who have sex with men. So echoing the verse in Leviticus, as I say, that's from the very popular NIV uh, study Bible, a very popular uh, translation uh, into English. So the Bible is clear. 
God in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, say that th th this kind of behavior is uh, will exclude you from God's presence and is detestable. So why is the church choosing to uh, why the, the clergy in the church choosing to follow the opposite teaching? That's a good question. I think maybe the church is following public opinion. It doesn't want to be unpopular. And it's particularly acute now because the church is declining rapidly. Fewer and fewer people are going. They don't, people don't like the church. They don't want to go there anymore. And so, of course, maybe we should change our teaching just so we don't have this as a problem. Most people then won't object to our teaching. So let's change our doctrine. Let's ignore what God has said and let's follow unbelieving public opinion. And this strategy, many think, will work. Will it work? Well, I doubt it. But anyway, that's their strategy. Now, by coincidence, uh, I came across another article in the Catholic Herald. This is Britain's leading Roman Catholic uh, paper, which I, I read religiously every week just to keep up with what the Catholic Church is up to. Um, and in the current edition, it says there's a headline. Pope Francis says church must be more flexible on homosexuality and sins of the flesh. This was an article published on the 29th of August, a couple of days ago. In a wide-ranging conversation with Jesuits in Portugal, the article says, during his visit to Lisbon earlier this month, uh, Pope Francis touched on several hot-button topics, including the church, the need for the church to be more flexible when it comes to homosexuality and so-called sins of the flesh. Now, it, it's interesting what he means by this. Uh, in the article, by the way, he criticizes conservative Catholics in America for being having a reactionary attitude. These are people who are quite strict on, on doctrine. But what he argues for, the Pope, and he quotes some, um, a monk from the 5th century, is that the idea that, that doctrine, Christian doctrine, develops and evolves and changes. Uh, and to quote the, the Pope, he says, doctrine expands and progresses with time uh, but is always progressing says the pope change develops from the roots upward growing in accord with these three for just 67 growing in accord with these three criteria and this is very interesting he then points to changes in the, the church's teaching already on a number of issues and one of them is the death penalty now he says, which now the church has abolished. The church is completely against the death penalty in any circumstances. Now, this is a big change. The church used to say the death penalty should be implemented for murderers or you know, rapists and, and, and so on, uh, but not anymore. And the Pope is quoting this example of change in the church's teaching because he says this implies upward movement and shows that change is necessary quote, unquote. So he seems to be saying because we've changed the teaching of the Bible uh, before, we can do so again with homosexuality. That seems to be what he's implying, much like the Church of England is doing. It's interesting how the Church of England, the Catholic Church, are following a similar trajectory, which is to become more liberal and to be more in accord with Western secular public opinion. And, it, and ignoring what the Bible says. Now, when it comes to the death penalty, I mean, I'm actually just rereading the Bible at the moment. I do that every couple of years just to remind myself uh, what it says, because it's a fascinating book, obviously. And in, um, I'm just up to, uh, in Genesis now, 
And I want to share with you what it says uh, about Noah. And Noah, as, as we know, is a prophet of God. And um, he was uh, very much sort of uh, appointed by God or chosen by God to build the ark and survive the great worldwide flood when everything was destroyed. And after the flood and uh, uh, kind of receded and um, God uh, initiates a covenant with Noah. And this is the first covenant we read of in the Bible, actually. And it's not just with Noah, this covenant. It's and with mankind and also with all living things, it says in, in Genesis chapter nine. There's one interesting statement where God tells Noah in this foundational moment, in this primal covenant with mankind, you know, represented by this man, Noah. Uh, God says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for he in the for in the image of God. Has God made mankind? Um, now, here, clearly, uh, God is saying that whoever murders another human being, deliberately, obviously, not by accident, not manslaughter, um, then they shall forfeit their life. And in the Bible, in our Bible, it says, because man is made in the image of God, it's a really serious offense to kill a creature made in the image of God. It's not just like any creature. It's a very special creature, the human being, in, in our Bibles. So this is a foundational covenant with God and mankind. Uh, and of course, there are plenty of laws in the Mosaic laws, which talk about the death penalty for murder and other crimes as well, including apostasy and so on. But it's interesting that the church, uh, for most of its existence, agreed with this teaching. It, it accepted it and said, yes, the scriptures teach that there's a death penalty for premeditated deliberate murder. But not today. The Catholic Church today, and you can check this online, states clearly that murder, uh, sorry, that uh, the death penalty is really, really bad and we shouldn't implement the death penalty. We are pro-life, they say. Um, so Alhamdulillah, we know that uh, Brother Paul Williams is a river to Islam and an academic also. Well, I said Britain is no longer a Christian uh, country and uh, so say the frontliner uh, clergy priests uh, attitudes have changed according to popular public opinion and the uh, as we know that the old testament is uh, you know against what the new world disorder is trying to do and you know take people away from religion so the church is uh, declining and therefore accepting uh, this uh, pub, uh, you know popular public opinion and so forth and uh, pope francis uh, of the catholic church he says uh, they need to be more flexible to the sins of the flesh, Allah, and also they should be more flexible uh, to uh, yeah the death penalty, or it should be should not be implemented going totally against what uh, has been said according to divine law. So you know they're adapting uh, to the uh, satanic woes and the phantoms and whatever they want to do, and uh, definitely anything that is uh, built on uh, Basil will definitely will perish and haq will flourish inshallah Marcus Sahaba online radio serving you wherever you are but i give them these examples why does islam put the rules here that when you're changing money for money why did, why what are the rules that it must be one to one okay no surplus okay and it must be spot 
Okay, why why do we have these rules in Islam? Who would want to exchange like this for that? Like who would want to here's the hundred for hundred? Okay. So to understand the importance of these rules, what you need to understand is that the all financial products, all the banking is based on they, them selling us money for money. Okay, all of the riba banking the, the things that brought economy to the collapse were a result of, 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 of this tra transaction. Okay? When these people started exchanging money for money in unequal amounts. So how did they do these things? So let me give you a quick example. Miracle of this, uh, of this uh, rule. So for example, if you remember global financial crisis, okay? global financial crisis, what, you, what people used to do is they would buy these homes, okay? They would buy these homes, okay? So let's say these homes were, I don't know, 100K, okay? 100K, okay? So they would buy banks, would sort of finance, they give a home loans to these customers, okay? So... What used to happen, so to, let's say to buy these three homes, let's say there's 300 homes or 1,000 of these homes, they would need, um, let's say, $1 billion. So all of these homes, to finance them, loans, it's a $1 billion, okay? $1 billion. Thousands of contracts, thousands of these things. Now, when they sell these things to the customers, okay, these are the customers, okay, here, Okay, because they give them what? Time. Where is this transaction? Here. Yeah. Because they give them time, what they ask in return? Surplus. So if you took a home loan for 100K, what are you going to return at the end? You're going to return 200. Okay, maybe more. Compound interest, okay? So what we have here, we have 2 billion that you're going to receive in profit. So we have a bank or organization issuing these home loans and sometimes in the future what they're going to receive? They're going to dub double the money. Okay? That's just how banking works, basically. Why, but why didn't they just take a quiet away from the risk, from real things and everything else? So this is a riba mentality that penetrates everything else they do. Okay, so what they want is just to deal with money, money to money. And that makes their life much more easier. And you'll see how. So now, if you think about these things, what do we have here? What do we have here? We have a billion dollar worth of contracts. So these were not for, as you mentioned, they're not buying equity in the homes. What they were buying is simply they were, they were, they were issuing loans. Okay, so when you look at a bank, what did they spend here? What are these things? We have one billion, okay? We have one billion, okay? Now, let's say today is 2017, okay? All right, now what do we have here? And that's, let's say, 2000 and 30 okay it's in 20 or so years so now we have this bank so 
What did I did I calculate this problem? No, no, 2040. So, okay, what what we have here is a cash flow coming here. Okay, so first of all, when you think about what is being exchanged here, okay, what are we exchanging? We are having. I give you this. You customers, I give you a billion dollar loan. You know, let's say collectively, I'm now looking. And what are you paying me? Two billion. So we have. Where is this money for money? Where is this? It's here. Okay. So somebody said, why Islam prohibits these things? You know, what's the problem? Money, give them a bit time, bit, you know, you make a bit of money. Okay. Now what's happening? Now these people, let me actually make it more simplified now. So, so think about all of these now hundreds and thousands of the customers. I will make them like into one sort of contract. So these organization, they look at, took at all of these contracts into one. Okay. So they took this contract into one, one billion dollar of these. So they call these CDOs, collateral debt obligations. Okay. They put it into, into something. Now this something, okay, it's, they made like a derivative, which is returning Okay, which which is returning how much in future? Okay, in future this CDO is come coming with the with the with the cash flow of two billion. Okay, so this CDO, okay, they call these derivatives. Okay, they say okay, in twenty years, this is what you're gonna make. Okay, so what these guys bankers are doing now? Okay, they take this thing, the whole thing, they put a little ribbon here, okay, all right, and they go to another bank, all right. So, in their mind, how much they spend to make this little package? They spend one billion dollar. They go to another bank, okay, they go to another bank, and they say, this little thing, okay, that we have here. We'll sell you for one point, let's say three billion. And what's your benefit? You will get two billion. Okay. You understand? You, I come to you now and I say, I'm gonna sell you this this thing. You don't know what it is. Okay, it's some contracts. I'll sell you this for one point three billion dollars. So what I'm saying to you, this is 1.3 billion thing, box. And how much you're going to make from this in next 20 years? $700 million. Wow. You say, I'm going to take something like that. And, and big banks, these guys, how good is this? They say, well, we'll give you even the rating. We'll throw in the rating. It's they call it AAA or whatever, you know. It's a really nice thing. Okay, so they give it a rating, they call it this AAA, let's say, security. Okay, which means really, this, this is going to deliver this $2 billion. Okay, now, what starts happening is very soon, these bankers here, they started figuring out, I need a lot of people here to take the loans from me. So I can create this thing where I push one billion, you know, you, on one end you push one billion, on another end comes two billion. 
product and I sell it at a discount. So I'm selling you $2 billion thing at a discount of what? 1.3. So you get this 1.3 and you wait for the cash flow. Okay? It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's happening. Okay? So we have all of these big uh, institutions and investors who want, who love these kind of deals. You give me something 1.3 that will be tomorrow too, I love it. Okay? This gives incentives to these people to then find more people, give them loans to buy a house so that they can create shiny new products and they can sell. So for these guys from doing this, how quickly they can make $300 million? Just doing this, boom, they make what? 300 million. You know? So they make this maybe in a year. Maybe in six months. Maybe less. Depends how fast they are. Okay? So this one, they, they make $300 million for doing this. No risk, no nothing. They just get people in, they boom, sell them, and they pocket $300 million. Okay? So what started happening is these people, bankers, started chasing anyone they could get to buy a home. So they would go to this, there was a joke, you know? They would go to the waitress who earns like 20000 a year, and they would sell them homes, half a million dollar homes. Okay? And because she couldn't afford, they would give them the honeymoon rates. Like virtually just paying the principal or a little bit of interest or sometimes even negative. Just so that she can pay a couple of years. Afford payment for just a couple of years. She can't afford that loan. But they would make it look as if she is paying on time. Where let's say payment should be 10000 let's say, or 5000 a month. They made it so that even if she pays in, paying 1000 for, let's say, first two, three years, she still is, in, you know, maintaining the loan properly. Okay? Why did they do that? They targeted these people because they are what they call subprime. Subprime. This is not a new normal food dog customer who can have a proper job and, you know, pay on time and really meet the obligations. But these people couldn't afford, a lot of these people couldn't afford these loans. They were given these loans because these bankers needed them in this package so that they can create the bigger contracts. And when they had these bigger contracts with more of these people, it looks good. Okay? Then they can sell these things to another person. And then what's, what, what started happening, okay, what started happening when these people took these loans, these uh, collateral debt obligations, so these derivatives, when they took over these contracts, what happens after a year or two? When this waiter, waitress defaults, cannot pay any more, what starts happening? It reduces the value of these $2 billion now. Suddenly she cannot. So these banks started selling these homes, getting rid of them. That started demolishing the prices of the homes. So the prices started going down rapidly. And more and more people started getting caught up in this. Because most of these people couldn't afford the loans, more of them were foreclosing and defaulting on their loans. And that dragged down the whole housing industry down. So as they started spiraling, this number now started dropping down. So not only did this go to 1.3, it started reducing 
They couldn't get anything, not even a billion or a half a billion. Nothing. Because people didn't want continued repayments. The whole economy uh, uh, sort of shut down. Now, these people are very clever. They knew that that's going to happen. So what they did, they took insurance before that happened. So they went to these banks and they said, we have this beautiful product with $2 billion worth. These guys are going to buy it. They went to the insurance. They created these what they call swaps or insurance for this. So in case this go down, insurance actually pays me the difference. Okay, so imagine how clever that is. Normally, you cannot take insurance on a neighbor's house. Why you cannot take on someone else's property insurance? Because you have the invested interest for that house to burn down. But in finance, you can. You can actually bet or you can take insurance of some of these products, even when you don't have them, let alone when you have them. Okay, so you can do all of these crazy things. So they started creating these swaps, and they were all of these bankers and the groups who were actually putting the worst type of customer, toxic. They created these toxic assets where they were putting the worst kind of customers here. Why? So that they can get to this beautiful number, sell it at a discount, and they say, and plus insure yourself. You understand? Yes, and uh, so you have it there, Almir Kola. Now, wisdom behind prohibition of riba, and he says how uh, riba changing uh, money for money. That's in Islam, 100 rand for 100 rand. But uh, with the riba system unequal, you know, the bank issues loans uh, with huge interest rates, uh, which uh, subjugates uh, the borrower who in most cases uh, fails to pay his uh, life uh, during his lifetime or uh, whatever he has borrowed. And in uh, many cases, uh, this riba system, uh, you know, putting people into abject uh, poverty and so forth. And also many defaulters have... Uh, lost their whole, uh, you know, life savings, and uh, this is how they work. But uh, these uh, banks, they know they're giving loans to people that cannot afford it, and you know what they do? They even have insurance taken on the clients that they're supplying. So, uh, yeah, there's a toxic market. We should be aware of that, and inshallah, hope and pray that, uh, you know, we try and stay Sharia-compliant, and Islamically, we shouldn't deal in riba because they declare war on uh, Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Empowering the Ummah Done it. Saudi Arabia and Russia, they have ramped up the pain. Oil prices have exploded up and the inflation pain is coming back. And it should be very obvious what we are seeing today. MBS and Putin, they are showing the world that they are in control of the oil markets. They can influence the price up even though we are moving towards a global recession. The West might be the gatekeepers of the global financial system, but OPEC Plus, they are the custodians of the commodity markets, especially energy. And what's frightening is how everything is getting weaponized today. The US dollar, oil and gas, and even food. And this gamesmanship isn't going to stop. In a shocking update, Saudi Arabia moves to extend a voluntary cut of 1 million barrels per day until the end of the year. And this is a significant cut because it adds additional pressure to the market. This production drop is in addition to another existing 1.6 million barrels cut that other OPEC members have already put in place until the end of 2024. Why do you think stocks immediately fell? The market knows that this is bad news and a second wave of inflation could be coming real soon. 
MBS is tightening his grip on the oil market and you'll quickly understand why. It isn't just Saudi Arabia either. Russia has also extended their oil export cuts of 300,000 barrels per day until year end. And here's what Novak said to the reporters. The voluntary cuts will be reviewed monthly to consider the possibility of deepening the reduction. If we read between the lines, Russia is giving a warning that the pain isn't stopping and might even get worse. So make no mistake guys, this is likely a coordinated move within OPEC+. Plus. The Saudi statement also says the exact same thing. And very soon, this resilient economy right, will be put to the test to see if we are really having genuine growth or if everything is just a house of cards. Just after the cards, oil prices flew up and almost smashed past $91. That brings us to a 10-month high and a record oil price in 2023. Understand how important this is. A higher oil price means energy inflation is back on the menu. And this rate high cycle isn't over yet. And over the past six months, we have seen banks collapsing and countries tumbling into recession. Can the world withstand higher rates if Putin and MBS cuts production any further? Or let's say they just maintain the current cuts. Central banks could be forced to hike further and this inflation fight is far from over. And let's sit back and think for a minute. Why is Saudi Arabia cutting production? Why is Russia wrapping up the pain? Now, both of them have different agendas. They have different reasons. Russia has been sanctioned to the gills, so Putin definitely holds a grudge, right? Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, naturally wants a higher oil price. A crazy 87% of their exports comes from oil products. So if they restrict supply, prices rise and their profits will soar. Saudi Aramco, the kingdom's oil company, is also considering selling shares in the open market. They are targeting a raise of $50 billion worth. A higher oil price will lift the chances of selling at a much better price which signals more profits for Aramco. So this could be planned or just a spooky coincidence. But if there's one unifying reason, if there's one galvanizing reason, it has to be the oil price caps. Remember the G760 price cap? Sure, Russia took the brunt of the pain initially. The oil price caps did in fact impact their revenues. They couldn't sell at a market price. They also had to give discounts to India and China to clear their massive volumes of crude. But guess what? Saudi Arabia was suddenly watching on the sidelines if a price cap were to hit them. And if they were reliant on the West for exports, it would totally crush their economy. At least in the short term, Saudi Arabia would be in big trouble. And let's recall what the Saudi energy minister said about oil sanctions back in March this year. It's basically a grave warning to the West not to try such a maneuver with the Saudis. And listen to this, if a price cap were to be imposed on Saudi oil exports, we will not sell oil to any country that imposes a price cap on our supply and we will reduce oil production. And I would not be surprised if others do the same. Well, this warning became a reality a few days ago. Saudi Arabia did cut production to simply show they had the power to. A big question I get is why does Russia or the Saudis dare to cut production? If the West stops buying oil from them, won't that crush their revenues? Now that's a fair question and to answer that, we just need to look at their customer list. Where's the oil flowing to? For Russia, we can see a clear evolution of their customer base. Before the conflict, most of the oil buyers were from the West. At least 60% of their crude oil went to the G7 nations, including the EU and the United States. So they were heavily dependent on the West back then. The stats are clear. But watch what happened over time. China and India began stepping up more and more market share. In May, 
China bought 25% of Russia's volumes, while India accounted for 34%. The G7 and the EU took in only 7% at best. The dependency on Western money has gone dramatically down. And here's the funny thing. Russian volumes as a whole have actually risen over the past few years. Exports reached nearly 20 million tons in May, while it was only around 30 million on average in 2021. And this means they don't really have a problem pushing out their oil to the rest of the world, especially to Asia. So if Russia contracts supply, they might actually earn more revenue. It's not a guarantee, but a real possibility. Now, Saudi Arabia is a little different. They deal with the entire world. However, the winds of change are here. We know that the Saudis have been shifting closer and closer to the Chinese. They have built two refineries here, so they'll obviously supply their own investments. In fact, Saudi Arabia will be supplying more oil to China, despite the global supply cuts. And if this isn't as clear as day what MBS is doing, then nothing is. The kingdom is also shifting their focus towards Asia. And the next chart also confirms this. Saudi Arabia's oil price increase to Asia was less than expected. It's normal to jack up the prices across the board, especially when you are cutting production. The market expected a rise of nearly $4 a barrel, but the Saudis came in with only a $3.50 increase. MBS isn't raising the price that much for Asia. It's basically giving your favorite customers a discount. Meanwhile, Europe was given a $2 price increase to a premium of $5.80. I don't think they had a good discount from the Saudis. So you can see where the winds are really blowing. If Saudi Arabia cuts enough supply, global oil prices will rise. And that is 100% true. But it might be the West that is paying much more than Asia. And you have Russia still giving good discounts to China and India. BRICS Plus is really protecting its own. And that's why a few days ago, we said Russia and OPEC Plus were going to pull the trigger on oil production. They have nothing to lose. There's a ton of upside and very little downside. Their customer base has been secured. But let's talk about BRICS Plus for a bit. There's a reason why the Saudis decided to join the bloc well over a year ago. Collectively, the BRICS Plus now represents 46% of the global population. And if you look carefully at these countries, they are still highly dependent on fossil fuels. Nations like China, India and Egypt are still powered by oil, gas and coal. Plus as a bloc, the BRICS Plus will continue to grow in population. That means a bigger customer base for Saudi Arabia's energy exports. If more countries like Indonesia, which has a population of over a quarter billion people join, the kingdom's future oil sales are more or less secured, there isn't a pressing need to sell anything to the West anymore. In fact, by aligning with the BRICS, Saudi Arabia is tapping into a block with the biggest demand for oil. They have effectively sanction-proof themselves, and oil price cap won't work anymore. If you force me to sell at a certain price, no worries, I'll sell to my other friends at a price that I want. And even I have to give a discount, I'll cut supply to the open market, and you'll have to pay more anyway. But how do you know this is a big deal, right? Well, it's because the G7 is in damage control mode. They are trying to convince the world that the price caps are working. In a story by Bloomberg, US official says Russian oil price cap is working despite the price rally. But something weird is happening. The Euro's oil have been trading well above $60 a barrel since mid-July. In fact, Euro's is trading at nearly $76 today. Are my eyes deceiving me, guys? Unless my math is wrong, that is $16 higher than the price cap. Russian oil is now trading at the highest point in 2023 so far. And if we zoom out, it's painfully obvious that the euros are trading at pre-war levels. 
is trading at prices higher than between 2014 to 2020. It's like the oil price caps never even existed. Now, a common pushback is that this is just the paper price of Russian oil. In the real world, countries are paying far below $76. They are buying euros at below $60. The West is winning. But this contradicts a lot of claims even in the mainstream. In a report by Reuters, India and China are snapping up Russian oil in April above the $60 price cap. The Wall Street Journal also gave a shocking report. Japan, a G7 member, also bought Russian oil at prices above the cap. And this was with America's blessing and approval. So things are really bizarre. And it's hard to argue that the price caps are very effective. America is still trying to claim victory here, which is also another Twilight Zone moment. According to the Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy, America is happy that Russia is selling more oil. And here's what he said. The US is happy to see Russia keeping the market well supplied so it doesn't want to disrupt the global oil market in a way that could lead to instability. But the big irony is that the markets have been destabilized. You just need to look at Europe and just ask Germany's industries. I'm sure their energy prices didn't stay flat. Price caps are no longer effective. I'm sure it was shock and awe on day one, right? But Russia has adapted and they are now working with OPEC to cut production to jack up prices. The IEA itself is recording a reversal of Russian oil revenues. The price caps came online in December 2022 and revenues did drop by around 2 billion over the next two months. But revenues have been stabilizing and are now reversing up to an eight-month high. And it's obvious why. The report itself states that higher oil prices are helping push up revenues for Putin. So if the price caps are working, why is the world still enduring higher oil prices? We are moving towards a recession, but energy prices are still sky high because OPEC Plus is essentially pissed off. And here's the final nail in the coffin. And here's why we know the price cap isn't working anymore. According to Reuters, the G7 has abandoned their plans to review the Russian oil price caps. They are supposed to meet and adjust the price cap every few months. But even as prices soar, nothing is being done. If price caps are working, why stop at $60? They might as well just go down to $30 or even $10 or even zero to fully crush Russian revenues. And this is the problem with trying to dictate the price of oil. Unless the world tomorrow embargoes Saudi Arabia and Russia, any attempts to control the oil price through a price cap won't work. And the only way to compete is to flood the market with your own supply. That means America needs to pump more oil and bring in volumes to the physical oil market, right? That would be more meaningful. But it is impossible today thanks to underinvestment in the oil and gas industry. Not enough money is flowing to the sector. Saudi Aramco themselves gave a warning back in March about it. And check this out. Persistent underinvestment in the oil sector will keep global supply tight. If you look at the spending on the sector, it is around $370 to $400 billion, currently the upstream side, compared to 2014, which was approximately $700 billion. And that means there are fewer oil wells coming to production while the older ones start to dry up. And this is why Russia and Saudi Arabia have so much control over the oil markets. The world just isn't investing enough in oil and gas. This fascination with green energy has gone too far. OPEC Plus has changed the game because they are aligned with the part of the world that is driving growth. They no longer care about the West because oil demand there is dropping. The oil trader Vitol made this very important statement. Asia will lead oil demand growth of around 2 million barrels per day in the second half of the year. So demand is going up in Asia and OPEC Plus is catering to their needs. 
by cutting oil production now. Saudi Arabia and Russia have played the perfect hand. It's a royal flush. Prices will rise, but it will be the West, particularly Europe, that will feel the pinch. We are seeing the rise of regional blocks and oil is the new battleground. Yes, uh, Saudi and uh, Russia have uh, changed the game, according to Sean Foe. So who's winning? Who's winning the game? Uh, banks are collapsing. Uh, Saudi Aramco is planning to sell shares in the open market evolution of a customer base. You know, KSA now supplying uh, China, uh, supplying uh, many other countries, India and so forth. And uh, there's uh, no one uh, dictating to them what the price cap should be. These uh, countries are paying the price. And also uh, two refineries built by China for uh, the Saudi market. And there's a very healthy uh, you know, relationship between these uh, two countries. So who's uh, dictating what? And what's happening to America? Perhaps they do not, do not have enough money to sustain their oil growth and invest in their, uh, you know, uh, energy sector and so forth. Something's happening, people. Something's really happening. Yes, sir, we hope uh, you enjoyed the program as much as uh, we did. And I'd uh, like to thank uh, our very own uh, Tobela for doing a uh, top take uh, this evening. Uh, keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming. And Alhamdulillah, also lovely Nasheed interspersed from the team and I. Until we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.